Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We have a fantastic guest for you today, James Clear. He is a writer, speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. He is, of course, the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. This book has sold over 5 million copies worldwide and has been translated into more than 50 languages. So join us as we break down James's philosophy on habits, talk the science of habits, and discuss the Enneagram, of course, with James, and try to figure out what number he just might be. Hey, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Crum. James Clear, author of Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. Welcome to Typology. Hi, great to talk to you. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm excited to chat. Well, congratulations on the book. It's sold more than 5 million copies. Uh, You didn't see that coming, did you? Uh, no, I don't think any reasonable, uh, rational author could expect that kind of outcome. Um, I uh, obviously am very fortunate and really excited, to, you know, to see that readers are enjoying it and sharing the word and you know spreading it to other people. Ultimately, you write books because you hope that they'll make a difference. You know, you hope that they'll spread uh, spread around the world and uh, people will enjoy them. And so, I'm very grateful that uh, that's been the case. And um, yeah, I just feel lucky. Well. We're going to discuss uh, uh, personality styles uh, in relationship to habits in a moment, but I, I just want to begin by having you share with us how you became interested in this topic of habits. Sure. So I've come at the topic a couple of different ways. I mean, you know, I've always been interested in sciences. I was uh, my formal training was in um, sciences. I have a degree in biomechanics, and then I went to graduate school. I went to business school. And so then I was interested in like the business applications of habits and behavior. So there's all that side, but then there's also the personal side. And, um, you know, so I want my ideas to be grounded in research and science, but I also want ultimately for them to be practical, for them to be useful, for them to be something that people can apply. And I think it's important that I write about ideas that I actually try out and use in my personal life because you know, I've struggled with all the same things everybody else struggles with with habits. You know, kind of one of the you know like ironic things is you write a book about habits and everybody thinks, oh, that must mean your habits are dialed in. But it's like, no, I you know I struggle with all the same stuff that you guys do. So, I think my readers and I are peers, and uh, we're going through it together. And I just kind of write about and share about the lessons that I learned along the way. Probably the primary way that I got introduced to this idea of small changes, and this is the story that I kicked the book off with was this injury that I had when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident. A classmate of mine took a swing, bat slipped out of his hands and uh, struck me right between the eyes. Broke my nose, broke my ethmoid bone, which is the bone behind your nose, fairly deep inside your skull, shattered both eye sockets. Um, I answered questions for a few minutes at the nurse's office in the school, but went downhill pretty rapidly and lost consciousness. had my first seizure of the day. I'd end up having three more. I lost the ability to breathe on my own and kind of basic functions like swallowing and breathing became hard. So they intubated me, pump, started pumping breaths into me by hand. Eventually I was air cared to a larger facility, um, was wheeled into the operating room to undergo surgery and had another seizure. 
And so they decided I was too unstable for the operation, placed me into a medically induced coma. And I remained that way overnight and then into the next day. And eventually my vital signs stabilized and they released me from the coma. And, you know, the process of healing started to begin, but it was this very long road for me. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't drive for the next nine months. I was on seizure medication for like a year. I um, had double vision for weeks. I, uh, my first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. And I mentioned this story just as an entry point to habits and behavior change and kind of my philosophy of, you know, trying to make small improvements each day, because this was a time in my life when I was forced to start small, you know, like I didn't really have a choice. All I really wanted was to just go be a normal, you know, high school kid and go back to school and be on the baseball team and drive my car and all that stuff. And, uh, I just had to focus on what I could do that day. You know, can I get a little bit better during this physical therapy session or not? I didn't really have a language for it at the time. Like if you came up to me, I never would have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better today. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was just like in the moment. But years later, now as I write about atomic habits and kind of, you know, continuous improvement, now I have like a language to, to assign to some of that experience. And um, it was a time in my life that taught me the value of starting small. And so I think I try to approach the topic of habit formation from both uh, a scientific angle and a well-researched angle and also from practical application and experience. Mm. So there are millions of books on the topic of habits, right? You, you see them under productivity. You see them all over the place. Some of them are, you know, fairly skinny, kind of thin gruel, if you will, which could lead a lot of people to be rather disillusioned. Apparently not 5 million people who are not disillusioned. <laughs> However, um, you know, what, what is it that makes the topic ha- habits different from the standard approach to the topic? Um, yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I read many of those books in preparation and research for writing mine. And, uh, you know, the truth is, like you said, people have been writing about habits for a long time and they're going to be writing about it for a long time after I'm gone. Like I'm just occupying a very small role and, you know, have this narrow sliver of time where I'm kind of adding my thoughts to the pile. And, uh, you know, for the most part, the science and research that I cover in Atomic Habits, I'm not really saying much new as much as I'm just trying to say it in a better way or in a more straightforward or easy to understand way. But the real thing that I think is somewhat new or somewhat uh, more useful maybe than what had come before is just taking the ideas and showing you how to practically apply them. You know, you'd be surprised how many how-to books are actually what to they, mm-hmm. they tell you what to do, but they don't tell you how to do it. So they will say things like, you know, you should be confident in yourself, but then they don't really give you any like practical ways to actually do that. Or they should say, you know, you should break your bad habits and build good ones, but they don't explicitly break down like what exactly do those steps look like? And so I think that was part of the, the role that I tried to occupy. And then if I was going to add anything else to that, I would say, um, the concept around identity is probably an identity-based habits is probably something that's like fairly new or different uh, to add to the conversation. Yeah, we are um, actually going to circle back to that because I have a couple of uh, questions I want to ask. That was actually the most riveting chapter in the book for me. Hmm. Was the whole idea of of identity, and and so I I promise you we are gonna we're gonna back into that one pretty fast. But for the sake of po- folks who are sort of new to the conversation. Give us a high-level overview of how habits are developed, both the good ones and the not-so-good ones. Sure. So broadly speaking, um, habits go through four different steps or four different 
stages. I like to break it into these four stages. And I think if you understand these four steps, you not only understand like what a habit is and how it works from a scientific standpoint, but you also have four different places where you can intervene. You've got different like levers that you can pull to make it easier to build a good habit or break a bad one. So from a high level, those four steps are cue, craving, response, and reward. Cue, craving, response, and reward. So the cue is a trigger that tells your brain to initiate the habit or some kind of prompt that gets you started. It's something you notice. So for example, if you're driving down the road and you hear an ambulance, you hear a siren come up from behind you. That's an auditory cue that starts the habit of pulling to the side of the road. Or you see a plate of cookies on the counter in the kitchen. That's a visual cue that starts the habit of eating a cookie. The next thing that happens is there's some kind of prediction that your brain makes. So I call this the craving, but it's really the meaning that you assign to that cue or to that experience. So you see the plate of cookies, visual cue, then pretty much without you having to think about it or do anything, your brain assigns this meaning to it. Oh, it'll be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. And it's that favorable interpretation, that favorable prediction about what a cookie means that motivates you to take the third step, which is the response. So you walk over, you pick it up, you take a bite. And then finally, there's the reward. Oh, it is in fact, sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. Now, not every behavior in life is rewarding, right? Sometimes things have a cost or a consequence. Sometimes they're just kind of neutral and don't really mean a whole lot. But if a behavior is not rewarding, it's unlikely to become a habit. You know, your brain needs some reason to mark that experience to say, hey, that was worth it. You should repeat that again next time when you're in a similar situation. So cue, craving, response, reward. Those are sort of the four steps that all habits and behaviors go through. And the more that you go through that loop, the, the tighter the feedback loop becomes, the more ingrained the behavior becomes, and eventually the more automatic or habitual uh, the action is. So the genius for me and part one of the elements that for me is genius obviously is that change in our habits have to take place on an atomic level right that it's the small changes that that make a difference you know because i do agree with you that we tend to think to ourselves i will never eat another cookie again I will forever break this habit, right? And that's a that may be a positive but unlikely to happen goal, right? Um, That we have to apply this on a smaller scale. Unpack that for me a little bit. So I actually chose the phrase atomic habits for three different reasons. The the first reason is what you're mentioning that you know behavior changes to be tiny or small, like an atom. The second meaning of the word atomic, though, and is the one that people often overlook, which is atoms are like a fundamental unit in a larger system. So atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And your habits are kind of like that. They're sort of like the atoms of our daily lives. You know, they're these little fundamental units that you put them together and you end up with your daily routine. And then the third and final meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And I think if you put all three of those meanings together, you sort of understand the narrative arc of the book, which is, look, we're going to make changes that are small and easy to do, and we're going to layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system. And collectively, they can lead you to a really powerful or remarkable result. And so it's not just about making changes that are small. It's also about making changes that are part of a larger system and are like carrying you towards some ultimate thing that you're optimizing for. 
So systems, right? You, you've mentioned that word a few times now. Again, another sort of genius element to the book, right? Is that it's not so much the goal that's the problem, it's the systems that are the problems that prevent us from, or help us, right, to build or break habits. So to talk about that for a moment. So, you know, before I rag on goals for a second, it's not that goals are useless, right? And this is coming from someone who is very goal-oriented in a lot of areas of life. Like I would set goals for the weights I wanted to lift in the gym or the numbers I want my business to hit or, you know, how many readers I wanted to get, like all, all kinds of things. And sometimes I would achieve those goals and sometimes I wouldn't. And eventually I had this realization that like, well, obviously setting the goal is not the thing that's making the difference because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you see that kind of pattern in all different areas of life. So say that you have a bunch of athletes competing at the Olympic Games. Presumably, every athlete that's competing has the goal of winning the gold medal, right? It's not the goal that makes the difference in their performance. It's the system they follow, the way they train, the way they practice, their coaching, their nutrition, how much sleep they got the night before. Mm. Same thing, you know, if you have a job opening and 100 candidates apply. Presumably, every candidate has the goal of getting the job. It's not the goal that differentiates them. It's how they prepare for the interview, their level of experience, their networking and connections, and so on. So if the winners and the losers, so to speak, in any given area have the same goal, the goal cannot be the thing that makes the difference in their performance. It might be necessary, but it's not sufficient for success. And so this was what leads me to saying, like, you know, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And if you were going to, you know, put a little finer point on that and say, let's connect it back to our conversation about habits. What is your goal? Your goal is your desired outcome, right? The thing that you're shooting for the target. What is your system? Your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there's ever a gap between your goal and your system, if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win, right? Almost by definition, your, per- your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. So, you know, whatever system you've been running, whatever collection of habits you've been following for the last six months or year or two years, like that has carried you almost inevitably to the results that you have right now. And, you know, it's not that other things in life don't matter. Certainly, you know, there's luck, there's randomness, there's misfortune. But over the long span of life, the arc of your life bends in the direction of your habits. It's like they create this trajectory that starts to pull you toward them over time because you keep repeating them day in and day out. And despite the challenges or uncertainties or randomness along the way, it's the direction that you begin to get pulled into. So, you know, in many areas of life, our outcomes are a lagging measure of our habits. They're a lagging measure of the system that we're running. So your finances, your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Your physical fitness is a lagging measure of your training habits. Your uh, knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Even like little stuff, you know, like the amount of clutter on your desk in your office or in your garage is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And it's one of these like great ironies of life. You know, we also badly want our results to change. We also badly want better outcomes, but the results are not actually the thing that needs to change. It's kind of like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. Adjust the system, tweak the, the little habits that compose each little gear in the overall machine 
and you'll be carried to a different outcome naturally. So I think that's kind of the, the core idea behind building a system of habits and focusing on the process much more than worrying about the result or the outcome. Okay, let's, let's unpack this with a real life example, okay? Sure. I know this guy. Uh, I know a guy. <laughs> and uh, his, his doctor told him that he needs to drastically cut down on sugar and embrace a high fiber diet because he comes from a family in which there's a genetic predisposition to diabetes, right? So it's not weight related or, you know, anything like that. Um, but he's having a hard, hard time passing up the cookies. And I say that in the plural. Um, so what, based on what you know, which is a great deal about habits, in general, what would you recommend he do? Trying to get a, a very practical look at how this works. Sure. So earlier I broke down those four stages that all habits go through, cue, craving, response, reward. That's like the scientific description of how a habit works. But what I like to do is how do we operationalize this? How do we make it actionable, something I can apply? And so I've come up with what I call the four laws of behavior change. And there's one for each stage. So the first law is to make it obvious. You want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. Easier it is to see, easier it is to make an adjustment on or act upon. So in this case, you know, the question about sugar, well, how can we, what, what are we currently making obvious is a good question. So is sugar like readily available and visible throughout the house? Is it like the snacks on the counter are the cookies versus something that maybe is healthier and lower sugar or higher fiber that the person's looking for? So how can you like prime the environment to make that easier? One question you could ask here is, what behavior is this space designed to encourage? And if it's encouraging consuming sugar, well, then you're fighting an uphill battle. Like we need to prime the environment for success. We do this all the time with kids. If you think about like infants or babies or toddlers, you know, parents do all sorts of things to baby proof the household. They put gates in front of the stairs. They make sure sharp objects like aren't, you know, laying around by the floor. They put outlet covers on so they can't stick their fingers in them. And you're just trying to set the kid up for success, you know, and yet some, for some reason, we don't do this with ourselves as adults as often, you know, like how can you set yourself up for success and stack the environment in your favor? So that's the idea behind making it obvious. The second step is to make it attractive. The more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more enticing or enjoyable it is, the more likely you are to stick with it. Now, sugar is probably going to remain attractive to your brain. You can't just like flip a switch and be like, oh, you know, that doesn't taste good anymore. But you can join groups, you can join tribes where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. I'm not going to say this works exactly for this example, but this is a closely related thing. So it makes sense to mention here. You know, a lot of people, like if they join a CrossFit gym, they think they go to work out and then all of a sudden they start to build friendships and stuff there. And they all start buying the same knee sleeves and buying the same workout shoes and they start eating paleo. And they didn't even intend to do any of that. It's just that the group that they're around, that's the normal behavior. That's the social norm. And so they start to soak it up. And so I think the question to ask yourself is, okay, what are some groups that are eating in the way that I want to eat? And can I build some relationships there, friendships there? And if you do, this is one of the things that gets people to stick to habits for a very long time. So the social environment is a very strong driver of whether habits remain attractive to you. If you want just a basic example of this, Imagine you walk outside your house on Tuesday night and you see uh, your neighbors cutting their grass and you think, oh, I need to mow the lawn. 
you might stick to the habit of mowing your lawn for 10 or 20 or 30 years, however long you live in that house. Like we wish we had that level of consistency with our other habits. And why do you do it? Partially you do it because it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because you don't want to be judged by the other people in the neighborhood for being the sloppy one. And so it's actually that social expectation that motivates you to stick to the habit. So I think that general question, how can I join a group where my desired behavior is the normal behavior? That's a good example of how to make habits attractive. So first law, make it obvious. Second law, make it attractive. Third law, make it easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless, simple a habit is, the more likely are to perform it. In this case, you know, we could just make it like, okay, let's just have one meal a day where I don't have sugar. You know, like, you don't have to go cold turkey. You don't have to never touch sugar again. Let's just start small and try to have one area or one time of day when I get a win. And then if you do more, if you feel like uh, doing more, going the whole day without it, then great. But let's start in some small way. And then the fourth and final law is to make it satisfying. So the more enjoyable or pleasurable or rewarding a habit is, the more likely you are to repeat it in the future. Um, you know, habits like this, this one that you're mentioning, I want to avoid sugar. This is like, there, there's, there's a class of habits that, that are like this, that are hard. It's like habits of, uh, of not doing anything. So I don't want to eat sugar. I don't want to have alcohol. I want to stop playing video games. It's hard to, for behaviors like that to feel rewarding because you're just not doing something. There is no real outcome. You're just kind of like sitting with the craving. So my recommendation in this case is to kind of like invert it a little bit or try to find an alternative path. One example here, I had a reader, he and his wife, they wanted to stop going out to eat so often, stop spending so much money at restaurants and start cooking for themselves a little bit more because it was healthy. But again, just not going out to eat is not very rewarding. So what they did was they opened up a savings account and they labeled it trip to Europe. And then anytime that they stayed home and cooked dinner, they put $50 into the account. And then at the end of the year, they took all the money that was in the account and they put that toward their vacation. And so you still are not getting the benefit of going out to eat, but at least you have something that in the moment, it feels good to be like, oh yeah, we just saved more for that vacation. Um, so you're trying to find some way for it to feel immediately rewarding. Um, so anyway, in summary, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. That's sort of the high level overview of how to uh, adjust a habit. Mm. You know, Anthony, this is this really pertains to my meditation practice. Um, I have a, a a really a pretty dedicated meditation practice. You mentioned meditation actually several times in the in the book. Uh, it it has been a real life changer for me over the years. It it's just had tremendous impact in countless ways. But I have times where, you know, life gets in the way and blah, blah, you know, you just fall off for two days or whatever. Um, and uh, but, you know, for for me, um, the four laws really, really works in this regard. Right. Like the cue. If you go in my office over at the house, my meditation cushion, my two meditation cushions are in my office you can't you have to step over them to go into my office in the morning <laughs> there's just no way i can not do it mm -hmm. right the great answer to that like what is this space designed to encourage you know it's yes. like the, it's set up for that yes yeah. uh absolutely and then uh what was the second law again make it attractive make it attractive so i am actually on insight timer and i also have i have a meditation teacher and i have a community 
right? It's a sort of small Buddhist community here in Nashville. And they have regular meetings uh, on Insight Timer. You can watch what other people are doing, you know, uh, and, and there are courses you can do and be part of, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm surrounded in a social context by people who value the same thing, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Uh, the third one again, James, I had this all written down, but I can't remember. What's the third? Make it easy. Make it easy. Okay. So um, I think part of making it easy for me is uh, actually the visual cue. Y- you know what I mean? Like it's just so obvious, right? But also on my timer, it tells me how many days in a row have I meditated. Mm. Y- you know what I'm saying? Which is part and of the reward thing. That a is a bit, reward right? for me. Yeah. You know, that is a, a reward for me. In the fourth Will one, you ever do a, a, a shorter session? Like, so for me, yes. the, as you're talking through this, I'm thinking of like for my version of this is my workout habit. So same mm-hmm. story. I've been doing it for years. It's, you know, influenced my life in many positive ways. But occasionally you get off track or you're just compressed. You know, you don't have a lot of time. You don't have much capacity or energy that day. But I have had many days where I will go down and I will just squat and the whole yes. workout will be done in 15 minutes. And it's not as much as I hope to do on my best day. But I was able to make it easier and show up and, you know, cast another vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And uh, that counts for a lot in the long run. Mm -hmm. I literally did it today. I am not fooling you. I did it today. Okay, so I missed two days this week because of a lot of work stuff, right? And I was traveling last week, and it's so hard to do when you're traveling. You know, you don't have your cushions with you. you're, Mm -hmm. You're tired. You're distracted, all that stuff. And uh, so this morning... I didn't do my meditation. I was getting ready for this interview. I was doing a bunch of other stuff that were, was, were time-sensitive issues, you know. And uh, I was at 11.30 this morning, our time, 30 minutes before this interview. I was gathering my stuff to come over to the studio, and I went, stop. Just stop. And rather than doing, you know, a 20 to 30-minute sit, I said, just do 10 minutes. Just, you have 10 minutes. Just do 10. Mm-hmm. And... Because I think sometimes the what we get in our mind is like, this happens to me with running. Well, if I can't do a forty-five minute run, right. I'm just not going to do it, right? Because right? Mm-hmm. it's not going to be up to the standards that I tend to ascribe to running, right? And it's like, no, just show up on the cushion. And by the way, the sit sucked. <laughs> okay, it absolutely sucked. I literally sat there. My head was like a guy trapped in a phone booth with a murder hornet. You know what I'm saying? It was just, you know, all over the place. And I just had to remind myself as I brought my attention back to breathing, it doesn't matter. Like just showing up is what matters. It's sort mm-hmm. of a, a little microcosm too of of focusing on the process, not the goal, right? Don't right. have a goal. If you, if you can't do 45 minutes, it's not about the goal of 45. It's about the process of doing it. So mm-hmm. 10 is good. Yeah, it's better to do less than you had hoped than nothing at all. But we talk ourselves out of that so often. And it's one of these deeper truths about habits, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, you have to like stick with it and maintain Mm -hmm. it, even if it's in a small way before you can scale it into something more. But as you said, like so often we think I need to do the full 45 minute run or I need to come up with the perfect business idea or the best workout program or the ideal diet plan. We're like so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up in a small way. But I'm always reminded that there's that quote from Ed Lattimore where he says the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. Mm. And there's, there are a lot of things in life that are like that. You know, like if you can just master the art of showing up and starting, even if it's just for one minute or 10 minutes rather than a full session, that has a lot of value in the long run. And it mm-hmm. 
it eliminates throwing up a zero. You know, like there are a lot of days where you, you don't do anything. And that that's what really eats into your progress. If you can show up, even when the situations aren't ideal and just do a little bit, reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule, that counts for a lot in the long run. Yeah, it really does. I mean, that's something I just completely just agree with in mm-hmm. the biggest way. Perfection, man. Perfectionism. Mm-hmm. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> it is the enemy for sure. All right. So let me just tell you about the Enneagram for a second because the show is really about personality, right? And so the Enneagram is a personality typing system. It teaches that there are nine basic personality styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood just as a way to protect ourselves, to navigate the world of relationships, get our needs met, right? Very importantly, each personality style has an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type acts, thinks, and feels, actually predictably and habitually acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis, okay? Um, Now, the nine sounds very reductionistic. However, there are a million different, there's an infinite number of variations of how that personality type expresses itself, right, within those nine, okay? So, you talk about the relationship between personality and habits, and I was fascinated with it. To unpack that a little bit. Sure. So in the book, the the measure, the test that I talk about are used is like the big five, which mm-hmm. people are, you know, have often heard about like introversion on one side, extroversion on another. That's one of the five spectrums. Then there are other ones like, you know, agreeableness, like how warm and kind-hearted you are or openness to experience or things like that. And Enneagram, I'm sure has, you know, you can imagine mapping this, you know, similarly there. Yeah, I'm really familiar with the big five. So some of the researcher, you know, ideas that I talked about related to that are that uh, many habits and behaviors have been linked to the underlying personality traits, right? And the... I guess the way that I think about it now from a practical standpoint is that it doesn't mean that you can't do certain things if you have a certain type of personality. It's just that understanding your strengths and weaknesses or understanding your personality and your inclinations, it better informs your strategy. So for example, you can imagine someone who say tests high on agreeableness, if they are particularly warm and kind-hearted and so on that it might be easier or more natural for them to get in the habit of say writing thank you notes or organizing, you know, at group outings with friends. It's uh, it just kind of maps or aligns more naturally with their personality. Whereas say somebody who like tests low on conscientiousness, which tends to be like your level of organization or uh, how orderly you are, if they're more spontaneous and less organized, then they might be the kind of person that they're probably not going to just remember to do it in terms of like just remembering to do their workout or, you know, follow through on something. So uh, environment design, priming the environment to make it more likely that they're successful, all the things you just talked about with like your meditation habit, having your pillow set out, having everything set up nicely, um, that might be a more important strategy for them so that they can walk into an environment where they're more likely to succeed and rely on just remembering to do it less. So I think that there's there are many different connections here, but it's really about understanding who you are and what your inclinations are, and then trying to adopt a strategy that works with that or uh, accentuates that rather than going against the grain of your natural inclination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that because I think oftentimes uh, writers make the egregious mistake of believing 
that their way of seeing the world is normal, mm. right? Rather than- Normal for them. Normal for them. And <laughs> right. so they write through that lens with right. the assumption that this is going to land on everybody. You know, right. this is, we have a guy that we've had on before and he's, he's made a, developed an empire around helping people with finances, right? And, you know, I, I, I said to him one day, I said, you know, everybody's relationship to money is different than yours, right? Or there's a, there's a, a terrific number, a swath of people who don't see the world the way that you do for whom it seems to me you haven't baked that into your calculations sometimes. Mm. So uh, one of the things I love about the book, you know, we have these nine styles. So for example, ones are the improvers. We, we used to call them perfectionists, but they're, they're the improvers, right? Their unconscious motivation is a need to perfect themselves, others in the world, right? But they're conscientious, they're dependable, they're responsible, they're analytical. You know, I could just go on and on, right, describing that type. And so in each type being different, they can approach this because you've written it this way, you've baked this into your your thinking, right? That every personality style is different and therefore the way that we approach building and breaking habits therefore can be different. This is something I think is important to realize about habits and you're, you're touching on, you know, a really crucial thing when it comes to the application of these ideas, which is that, you know, look, there is no one way to change your behavior. You know, like there are many ways to win and there are many different situations in life, not just different personalities. There are also different contexts or environments or circumstances we find ourselves in. And so my hope with what I laid out in the book and the strategies that are there is, look, this is a toolkit, right? And like, sometimes you need a screwdriver and sometimes you need a hammer and sometimes you need a saw. And it depends on the situation and it depends on the person. You know, some people are going to be able to make better use of a wrench than a screwdriver. And so my job is to lay all the tools out on the table and to say, this is how they work and here's where they could be applied or how they could be utilized. And then your job as an individual and as the person in charge of your life is to say, okay, look, this is the strategy that resonates with me. You know, this is the one that feels like it would fit uh, in my situation. And my hope is that there's a broad enough tool set that, you know, can apply in most situations. But the idea that there's like one prescriptive formula that everybody has to follow, I mean, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And also, it'd be a little bit, I think, disingenuous as an author or hard to like actually achieve that. I mean, you know, it's impossible to see every angle uh, in life. And so uh, to act like, hey, here's the formula and just follow this one plan, um, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the relationship between identity and habits, right? Because that was, as I mentioned, my favorite chapter in the book. Just talk to us a little bit about it. So, we have these surface level reasons why we talk about habits and how they, you know, how they matter. We say things like, you know, habits will help you get fit or make more money or be more productive or reduce stress. And, you know, it's true. Habits can do all that stuff and that's great and it's valuable. But I think the deeper reason, the real reason that habits matter is they provide evidence of your identity. They reinforce certain aspects of your story. So, Every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you perform these small behaviors, look like, no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence may not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I am a writer. And the more that you perform these small habits, the more you cast votes for that aspect of your story. And you kind of build up this little body of evidence. 
And eventually, you know, you have every reason in the world to sort of believe that about yourself because you have evidence of it, you have proof of it. And this is a little bit different than what you often hear. You often hear people say something like fake it till you make it. And, you know, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like your brain doesn't like this mismatch between who you say you are and what you're actually doing. And so my argument is to let the behavior lead the way to start by doing one push up or meditating for one minute or sending one email and letting that be evidence that in that moment you were that kind of person. And what ends up happening is your habits are how you like embody a particular identity. So every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time that you meditate for one minute, you embody the identity of someone who is a meditator. And really in the long run, this is what we're trying to get to. Like the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. Mm-hmm. The goal is not to do a silent meditation retreat is to become a meditator. And in this case, I'm using like labels uh, to say, to talk about identity, matter, meditator, runner, writer, and so on. But it's also true for characteristics, you know, like I'm the type of person who finishes what they start, or I'm the type of person who shows up on time, or I'm good at remembering people's names. Like we all have these stories that we can tell ourselves about who we are and what we stand for. And of course, this works in the opposite direction too, right? We have all these negative aspects for identity that we tell ourselves, like I'm bad at remembering people's names, or I'm bad at math, or I'm terrible at remembering directions, or I have a sweet tooth. You know, like we have all these stories that we tell ourselves and then our behaviors kind of follow suit. And so my argument is let's start with a small habit and let's use that as evidence of that identity. Let's cast votes for the type of person we wish to be. Hmm. Yeah, I I was thinking about that when I read that phrase in the book, borrowing another idea from someone else. It's like, cast your vote for the person your future self would like you to be. Mm. Yeah, that's great. The reason I was sort of excited about this is I have a new book coming out in December called The Story of You. Mm. And, And what it is, is it's really a narrative approach, right, to understanding um and working with personality essentially so all of us have stories we tell ourselves and others about who we are and how we think the world works we i think all of us you know collect those stories as little people right and the problem is that the vast majority of them are broken stories right i mean they're just broken and There's this wonderful researcher, Dan McAdams at Northwestern. He says, all transformation is story transformation. Mm. Like you you have to change the story you tell yourself about who you are and how the world works before you can even start to think about changing. So it's sort of like what's underneath the waterline there? What's the story you're telling yourself about who you are? And essentially what, what McAdams would say, and I agree with him, is that identity is built on stories. I mean, really, it's just built on stories. And so I would imagine that part of changing habits then is interrogating the story that you've been telling yourself for decades probably about how, who you are and how the world works. And then beginning to uproot that story and to rewrite it in some way, to rewrite the story. So I see the correlate there to, to what you're saying, right? That narrative plays a huge role. I think that's true. The process of changing your behavior in many ways is the process of changing your story. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the things that's tough about identity, which is the tighter you cling to your current identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. The, tarter, the tighter we cling to those previous stories that we have, especially those that are no longer serving us, mm-hmm. the harder it becomes to advance to the next stage. And yes. this is a, you know, it can be a challenging thing to learn. I, the thing that helped me with it a little bit is realizing that I like to think of life as a series of seasons. And so this question of what season am I in right now can be helpful or revealing. And you often notice that when you have a change in seasons, your habits need to change as well. And a lot of the habits or beliefs or stories that we tell ourselves that no longer serve us, it's quite possible that they did serve us in a previous season. They may, be, they may have played some important role a couple of years ago, but we're no longer in that season and we are still holding on to that story that we need yes. to let go of now. Yes. And so the process of change is sometimes learning to let go of something that used to serve you mm-hmm. and that used to be beneficial, but has now outlived its usefulness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that can be a challenging thing to do, but ultimately I think behavior change often boils down to developing a new story for the cues, experiences, and, um, actions that we take. You know, um, this is so exciting to me, right? <laughs> it's done, no, it's because awesome. of the book. I, yeah. you know, the reason I love this is because I think, you know, one of the stories on the Enneagram, one of the types tells is I live in a give to get world and in order to find love. I have to meet the needs of other people and while at the same time disowning my own needs, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that story works for that personality style as a little kid because for whatever reason, and there's multiple reasons for this, that story helped them get their needs met as a little person, right? It just helped them get their needs met. But when you drag that story into adulthood, it's like what Carl Jung said, that which helps you in the morning of life to survive will kill you in the afternoon, you know what I mean? It's it just, you know, and so we're just on autopilot inside these broken stories. So you got to change the narrative. You got to see the story. You got to own what the story has done to your life. There's a process of awakening and then rewriting. Mm-hmm. And I think that will have uh, will be a great support to creating new habits. In fact, they'll probably just the green shoots of those new habits will begin to reveal themselves mm-hmm. as that cho- that story changes. Yeah. In so many ways, progress requires unlearning, mm-hmm. you know, and um, that in that sense, unlearning is just as important as learning. And it uh, can be hard to let go of those things that we have previously seen work for us, but uh, had no longer do. Yeah. I love too what you're saying when you practice something on an atomic level, you're saying, I am embodying this person I want to be in this moment, you know, that helps you re-narrate mm-hmm. that story. I love that practice. We we have a... a- a teacher we love. Her name is Tara Brack, and and mm. Tara's a looks like you know who I'm talking about. But but Tara tells this wonderful story about a guy that was a smoker, a heavy smoker, all of his life. Has a stroke in his mid 60s, um, and literally in the he just gave up smoking, right? Because he forgot his his fixed identity, which is I'm a smoker. Mm. <laughs> it literally just neurologically, it just fell out of his brain, and he quit smoking without basically without withdrawal he just forgot he was a smoker so his identity that fixed identity yeah. fell apart wow. right as a result of the stroke now of course he had the i don't want to say the benefit but the experience of something that forced the change of story but it it, it changed the habit for sure right mm-hmm. fascinating to think about the connection between behavior and memory there mm-hmm. that how many things we do are just because of the stories we remember about them and mm-hmm. uh you know if you can somehow eliminate that 
then behavior changes easy instant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's some obvious deep connection there, but that's uh, that's a fascinating example. All right. So we got to wrap up and I, but I do want to ask you a question. How would you describe your personality? Um, I, <laughs> I don't know what this shows up as on any Enneagram, but, um, I always feel like I'm like four different things whenever I take some of these assessments. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I don't know what the, the blended approach is. Um, actually parts of, uh, you know, depending on what, uh, assessment you take, usually something like, like if I take strengths quests, things like achiever, which perhaps is close to this improver one that you mentioned earlier, um, show up futuristic, uh, or future thinking, long-term oriented. Um, that is usually some part of it. And then focus is also one of my big strengths being able to conversely compartmentalizing things and doing things in many little chunks is not uh, like, I don't like task switching. I'm not, I would much rather work on one book for eight hours in the day than to have eight, one hour calls. Um, so yeah, those are a couple elements of it. Well, you've sort of nailed yourself down to about three different types. Uh, one of which will sound more like you than the other two. Right. Mm -hmm. And that would be what we would say is probably your dominant type, because actually we are all nine types. There's just one we by default click into. Right. It's we're more that type than the others. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you ever get a chance to look at the Enneagram, you sound like you could be a three, a seven or an eight. The achiever is actually one of the names. Right. Mm -hmm. And their sort of unconscious, actually broken motivation is a need to succeed, to appear successful and to avoid failure at all costs. Right. There's the eight, and the eight is called the challenger, and they are the larger-than-life, intense uh, personality on the Enneagram. They, they can be notoriously blunt. Um, they are challenging, con oftentimes confrontational. You know, they, they love a good debate, right? Um, and then the seven is very entrepreneurial. They're called the enthusiast. You don't strike me energy-wise as an enthusiast, but... The enthusiast is basically the joy bomb of the Enneagram, right? They mm. just love escapades, adventure, fun. You know, they're the, uh, and, they're, and they're very pain avoidant, right? Distressing emotions, very, very difficult for sevens. But yeah, it sounds like you might be one of those three. Probably not an eight. That's the one that sounds least like me of those mm -hmm. three. What's a one? My wife has taken it and she said, oh, I think you might be a one. That's the improver. Or we used to call them the perfectionist and their unconscious motivation is a need. They have a very, very high emphasis on self-improvement. Do you have a very strong inner critic? Like some um, inside your brain that really is pretty hard on you with shoulds, oughts, and musts? Mm, I, like Definitely the the quest for self-improvement is a big part of it, but I'm think I'm pretty good about not beating myself up actually. That like that to people who are always like uh yeah, just destroying themselves internally, like that doesn't really resonate. I think probably of the ones you mentioned, probably a three. Yeah. Um, but maybe with strong aspects of a one and a seven. Yes, and that would make sense. We we talk about mistyping or misidentification because there's overlap, right? And so the difference is, is that threes would be uh, the the motivation for their behavior, though they may have the same traits. The motivation for the trait is different, 
right mm. and that's what determines that's what determines type you know this has been a fascinating conversation yeah and i loved the book i have to ask have you ever uh interviewed tom brady because he seems like a poster child for a lot of what you've seen. yeah i uh, i have not interviewed him but we did send uh we did send a copy of atomic habits his way um i never got confirmation on whether he read it or not but i uh, <laughs> do agree that he would probably like it uh, if he did read it so i just want to remind everybody the name of the book is atomic habits join five million other people and buy this book uh, atomic habits an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones by my guest james clear you can learn uh more about james uh you can get his newsletter which i get three two one right yeah please don't tell me it's one two three it is three three, two two, it is three two okay i get the newsletter (laughs) instagram.com uh forward slash james clear that seems to be across all your social channels and of course your your website jamesclear.com uh james what a what a treasure thank you so much for taking the time to come on and teach us some stuff that's so actionable Mm -hmm. and uh but also not facile you know it's not you know, it's not a cursory overview of, okay, let's just change some habits, right? You, you, you dig down into some deeper levels and layers, and I, I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you as well. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I hope people found it useful. All right, my friend. Typology listeners, uh, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time. Until next time.